Pring, pring. Is, has any phone in the history of the world <laughs> ever heard that? Okay. Uh, do you guys remember Star 67? <laughs> I know I do. Like, serious question. This is like... I Because I remember prank calling people back in high school. Like, yeah. I like 100% What about your, like, alias or your NV touch? Oh, I told... NV2. I had an NV2. You had an NV2? Yeah. about high school? Maybe when I was, like, 12. <laughs> okay. See, I was one of those people who got a phone, like, going into freshman year of high school. Oh, So I'm I sorry, jumped right Aaron. to, like, the NV... Oh, no. I think it was a... Gal- you didn't get your phone NV. until first year of high school? No. It was the summer before my first year of high school. I didn't get Facebook until sophomore year of high school. That's not that weird. I didn't get Facebook till college. That's really? like not weird. Okay. Anyway, do you guys remember <laughs> Star sixty seven? It was like the buttons you pressed to like make your phone like show up as like unknown or blocked. No, I know what I know what it is. Yeah. yeah well, I'm talking about for my listeners. Okay. I just wasn't cool enough for it. But yes, keep going. Okay. Anyway, so basically, long story short, someone may or may not have Star sixty seven, Secretary Rick Perry. Oh. <laughs> and pretended to be the Ukrainian ambassador. Oh. At which point, Rick Perry took this call and had a 20-minute-ish conversation with the, I'm doing air quotes right now, Ukrainian ambassador, oh. who turned out to just be a prank caller. It just hurts every time. I mean, hey, if the Ukrainian ambassador called you, Krish, would you not pick up the phone? Like, I, mean, I don't know what you're blaming Secretary Perry for here. But, like, clearly it wasn't like a, like a, like... I wouldn't even know what country code, like, Ukraine calls from. <laughs> but, like, you think you'd know from, like, the area code or whatever. I mean, you'd assume they would call from, like, an ambassador. Like, the Ukrainian ambassador, like, calls through, like, the embassy, and, like, that shows up on phones. No. I don't know. Yeah. Like, we're talking about, like, senior members of, like, the cabinet. And they got on a 20-minute prank call. Like, it's... Well... That's just a fun way to welcome you back to Fly on the Wall. And Did you miss us? Did you? Did I knew you? you did. Uh, and we'd like to open up with a segment that we're going to impromptu call What Did You Miss Since the Last Time We Talked to You? Because believe it or not, it's been over a month since we had a podcast episode. This idea came about from... I follow... My Twitter is two things. My Twitter is politics and my Twitter is sports. And every time there's a very long streak of wins or losses, I like to see the, like, oh, uh, things that have happened since the Warriors lost a basketball game Hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. This is what I feel like this is. (laughs) Things that have happened since the last time your fly-on-the-wall team dropped a pod. Yeah, that's true. Well, we got a lot uh, to cover. Christian just gave us his one of his favorite moments. Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't give you some closure. I know we talked a lot about healthcare over the course of the last semester. Talked a lot about healthcare. We did, and because it was very important, as we learned. Uh, so we'll give you some closure, uh, especially after the dramatic week that we had last week, uh, up to a final vote in the Senate. Yeah, John McCain delivering uh, that final blow to the repeal and replace effort that didn't quite look the same as it had when it started. They'd gotten down to a bill called a skinny repeal, which yeah. would have stripped away some provisions of the ACA, not really implemented a full replacement measure on its own. Uh, not really a great looking policy, um, not as fully fleshed out as we would have liked. And uh, three Republican senators all uh, defected from that vote, uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine, and of course John McCain of Arizona, who provided the 2 a.m. drama that uh, Justin and I stayed up watching <laughs> separately. Yeah, Christian was passed out. Oh. Justin and I were in our rooms, both on Twitter uh, and watching C-SPAN simultaneously and messaging in a group chat. Oddly, like, in different rooms. Like, you guys really should have just done this in one room. Okay, so the sad part is that we're living in George Washington University's Madison Hall, so, unfortunately, there was no common area in which to dwell as we were watching this drama unfold. So we were just in our own beds. I was just going to get the CNN update in the morning. It was going to be a yes or a no, and I was going to go about my day. Justin, what was your biggest story from the uh, the last four weeks? Well, you see, Aaron, this story is kind of difficult to talk about because, as a podcast, we're not taping live, which is unfortunate at times. We do a pretty darn good job of getting podcast out pretty regularly, 
staying up on the news. But this particular news story has proven pretty difficult to stay on top of. And uh, the story that I'm talking about is the senior staff of the White House, Mm. uh, because they seem to be changing places pretty frequently these days. Um, So as of this recording, (laughs) (laughs) as of this recording, this has happened on the podcast. We're going to do our best to stay on top of this, though. As of this recording, um, let's see, where do we start? The press secretary, Sean Spicer, is out, um, who was replaced by one of Trump's, I guess, former associates, you could say, Wall Street executive Anthony Scaramucci. He has since been replaced because of the new chief of staff in the White House, General John Kelly, who replaced the White House chief of staff of six months, Reince Priebus. Try and keep up, guys. We're trying our best here, too. I wish we had, like, a, like a flow chart. <laughs> we, yeah, I, I, I need a visual. I need a visual of who's going where, who's moving, who's in, who's out. In fact, we got uh, Jen Psaki, uh, hashtag friend of the pod, uh, tweeted out today, um, or, well, a couple of weeks ago when they got the I, time. Is days. It's here. only days. It's, it's only days. been days. Uh, anyway, she tweeted, uh, congratulations to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, as she said... Um, while they don't always agree on politics, uh, she always loved to see a woman representing the White House. Uh, so that's always really cool. Uh, so congratulations to her on the promotion. Um, but as you can tell, there's a lot of movement in this White House. Uh, okay. <laughs> Shifting gears a little bit. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about what's on the horizon in politics, since I think that's equally fascinating about what we've just gone through. So as God, much I as hope you can... not. <laughs> I do as, hope it's a little more tame. As much as you can talk about the future in this Trump Well, era. we know for sure. And this, like, for sure. Okay. 100%. The, the debt ceiling is going to yep. have to be an issue. <laughs> like, they, they physically cannot ignore that. Like, there is a day at which the global economy will feel the effects if America does not do something with the debt ceiling. And that day is rapidly approaching. If you guys are curious to learn more about the debt ceiling uh, and more about uh, a lot of what we're about to talk about in the next 10 minutes, which is going to be tax reform, the debt ceiling. Are we going to talk in... I was just going to do like a two minute. Like, okay. Well, I do not 10 minutes, know a lot of things about Two taxes. minutes. Well, you know who does, <laughs> interestingly enough, our old podcast guest, Grover <laughs> Norquist, uh, president of America's for Tax Reform. Yep. And... Uh, he was a great episode where we talked a lot about his ideals. Um, he is an instrumental part of what's about to happen in Washington, and you guys should all listen to that. So let's get into it. So specifically, what about tax policy intrigues you the most? Let's do a roundtable. Christian, what, what about tax policy really grinds your gears? Oh, man. Okay. So <laughs> grinds your gears is a segment we should really start, for the record. <laughs> it's going to be the first one now. Congratulations. <laughs> You know what really grinds my gears about taxes? Wait, I really like that. Can we like make this? <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. I like this a lot. This reminds me of this reminds me of uh, Family Guy. What grinds your gears? Okay, so I am a student, right? Right. Okay, which we means pay any taxes. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I am a student, which means I have to fill out a lot of financial forms at the beginning of every year. Um. Because I ask the government for money to pay for my incredibly expensive Georgetown education. Probably the that part out too. <laughs> I don't... It's, it's expensive, newsflash. Um, anyway, my dad has, like, the simplest tax policy, like, thing you could possibly have, right? Like, he doesn't own stocks. He doesn't own property outside of, like, our home. He doesn't, like, have outside incomes. Like, he literally gets an income from the government because he works for the government... And he, like, takes that money, puts it in the bank. That's it. Like, it's it's the simplest of taxes you could possibly imagine. Number one, he doesn't do his own taxes, which makes me question his ability to do basic math. <laughs> but number two... Anthony, come on. Anthony, if you're listening, do your own taxes. Stop paying that person, like, 1% of whatever you're doing for your taxes. Number two, I looked at his tax forms because I have to to fill out FAFSA and... Uh, all of that, it's like wildly more complicated than I thought. It's like a pretty difficult system when you get down to it. Like genuinely speaking. Because my dad, who has like a singular income that goes into a bank account, doesn't have bonds, stocks, literally anything outside that you could possibly consider income. And yet like I was struggling to figure out what all of this meant. 
It's the it's the withholdings and allowances. Hey, we're talking about his gears. Your gears are next. Yeah, your gears. No, I'm 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 second in your gears. So basically, what Republicans want to do with tax reform, there are two things that they want to do, and this is getting into the weeds a little bit. Um, and you guys can get into your gear gear grinding. Yeah. Republican. This is why people vote. This is a lot of the reason why people vote Republican. They want to simplify your taxes to make it like a basic percentage of what your income is, and then number two, they want to lower it. Like, they want to lower taxes across the board. But they definitely don't want to raise taxes. Most of them want to lower it. Uh, and so, like, on the surface, yeah, like, I'm for tax reform. Like, those papers are complicated. Like, I really want to figure out, like, I would just like you to take 28% of my income. Just right off the bat, love it off, done, taxes, great. You're next, like, moving on. This form should be, like, two lots. Should be income, percentage I'm supposed to pay in whatever bracket I'm in, and then money I'm giving to the government. That's what grinds my gears, folks. Someone go next. Justin. My, my gears are kind of grinded by the same thing, to be honest. Like, I, I don't understand this at all. Like, as a young 20-year-old college kid who's, like, just starting to realize that he needs to manage his own finances and, and manage them carefully, like, I don't look forward nor have much confidence in my ability to like do my own taxes like no no wonder there's these companies who like people pay to do it it's like i don't have the time nor the effort nor the energy i don't get it yeah i mean mesa you're like you're absolutely right here i forget who said it in one of the republican debates last year i think it was like carly fiorina or something but she was talking like how many thousands of pages of tax code was she's like i want a three-page tax code and i'm like what you can't have a three-page tax code but i'm like that kind of sounds simple Three might be an oversimplification, yeah, but my gears are grinded by my frustration at being a self-identified, politically savvy individual, yet understanding very little about the United States tax code. Should be your Twitter bio. Just a heads up. My Twitter bio is much more fire than that, guys. <laughs> Climate change is real. It is. Uh, I'm anyway, sorry. Aaron, what grinds your gears? Uh, what grinds my gears? That's a great question, because you guys took, like... Well, I think the, in general, grind your gears of taxes is... A, they exist, and B, they're complicated. Right, you know? like, I kind of stole it there. Yeah, and you summed it up pretty nicely. I guess I do see the tax code as a very effective tool of of, uh, of statecraft and government policy, right? Because there's a lot of ways you can use it to incentivize both businesses, both individuals, both or, like in organizations, like to do things that the government views as beneficial, right? And as you know, I'm, I'm one inclined to believe that, you know, giving to charity um, is something that the government can incentivize through tax breaks. And I think there are a lot of other instances uh, where, you know, it's just a good tool that the government should have in its back pocket. But the, the, the part where my gears get grinded is that it's very hard to reconcile, you know, trying to keep a simple tax code that everyone can understand and everyone can abide by uh and it doesn't take you know days and days and days to to file your taxes um but also maintaining the ability of the government to um use it in a way uh, you know that produces a, a better society so uh, and that's just where i'm coming at it from my point of view but it, it, it's hard it's hard to understand the balance and it's hard to to find an optimal solution which is why you know everyone's struggling with it. which is also why congress hasn't voted on it yet well it's why no congress hasn't <laughs> presented a plan yeah i mean mind you like our taxes are pretty like if like our taxes are simple right like we get like a basic income or like you know my dad's taxes, for example, really simple. But like, if you're a person who owns like five businesses, you know, you own stocks in certain markets, you know, you give this amount of money to charity, you have three kids, uh, you know, you make X amount of money. Um, it, there's like always a question of like, what is your income specifically? And like, what can be counted as income? What's not counted as income? And that's like where this stuff gets really complicated. So like for people like my dad, who I'm probably giving way too much information about his taxes. <laughs> Doesn't appreciate it. <laughs> This is a simple process, but for a lot of people, it's an incredibly difficult process to do your taxes. Okay, so before we get into our conversation with Charlie Spees, uh, we're going to do a couple of uh, in-house items that we haven't done in a while. Uh, number one, a political fun fact coming at you. Uh, if you don't remember, this is our second political fun fact. Our first <laughs> had to do with... <laughs> George Bush and uh, it was so good guys his, Christian came to me with this idea and he's like I have a fun fact we need to put it in the podcast now it was like go for it because this is just the, my favorite new segment um, anyway it may or may not have had to do with a prime minister 
a former president and throw up. Our political fun fact is brought to you by Andrew Jackson. Uh, the first attempt to assassinate a president was on Andrew Jackson uh, by a house painter named Richard Lawrence. And interestingly enough, both of his guns backfired and he was not able to actually assassinate President Andrew Jackson. Now, I know you're thinking, Christian, what are the odds that both of his guns would backfire? I'm fascinated. I know. I'm glad you would ask, listeners. The answer is that one in 125,000. Those are the odds. So congratulations, President Jackson. You survived an assassination in a one in 125,000 Well, I like the back half of the story, which is that Andrew Jackson, who walked with a cane at the time, wasn't taken aback by this attack at all. Took his cane cane and started beating the guy. Literally caned the guy to the ground. I, like... Good for you, Andrew. Like, at that age, to, to not go into immediate cardiac arrest, like, you're doing something right. To be completely honest, they must have had, like, pretty bad guns back then, because I feel like those odds should be higher. That two guns backfire. <laughs> right. Do the math on that and get back to me. Then yeah. we can have a better statistics conversation about That's this. fair. That's All right. Fair. Well, I think at that point, it's time to just transition right into to yeah. Charlie. Yeah, we, uh, we should stop talking. We have... Done enough. Um, all right, well, with that, let's dive right into it with Charlie. Just to give you a brief background on who he is, Charlie Spees is the leader of Clark Hill's National Political Law Practice, which, if you have no idea what any of those words mean, we ask him literally in the first question. So you'll be able to get a good sense of what he does. But basically, uh, what he does is a lot of helping political groups, both campaigns and organizations, navigate direct uh, engagement with the political process. So basically, engaging in election law, helping with finance and other uh, legal regulations, reporting, compliance, stuff like that. Uh, Things that are really, uh, it's a unique look at politics. And it's for someone with an interest in both law and uh, the political process might actually be a good fit for for any of you listeners out there thinking that he may be a, a, a future person to aspire to. Basically, He's like a million times smarter than us. Yeah, Just basically. Like way smarter than us. And he was. that seems to be a common theme with guests on this podcast. We know that because he is a Washington Washingtonian magazine super lawyer and been named as one of the most powerful people in Washington. Do so, you get like a super suit for being a super lawyer? I really hope so. So the thing is we had to talk to him over the phone uh, because our time our schedules just didn't match up. So uh, he may have a super suit on. We don't know. That's true. We'll have to follow up with him afterwards and ask. Uh, but he's also gotten involved in a lot of different uh, campaigns. So primarily, he was the chief financial officer and one of the counsel uh, for Governor Mitt Romney's 2008 presidential campaign. Uh, he was also pretty involved with the Republican Governors Association uh, and makes the rounds on the, the talk shows as well. So he very much knows the GOP and uh, the, the issues they're working with and the, the, the fight to get them elected, which I think is... A uh, very unique and interesting perspective, especially now as uh, our parties are rapidly changing in politics. It uh, looks very different now than it did uh, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. So we're very appreciative to have Charlie on the show, and we can't wait to hear what he has to say. Yeah. And with that, Charlie Spees. Great. So our first question for you, and everyone, this is Charlie Spees uh, on the line with us. The first question is, so what exactly is a a political lawyer? And what makes a political lawyer different than just a normal lawyer? Uh, Well, there's some confusion because some lawyers who are interested in politics might have misconceptions. But when I and my colleagues say we're political lawyers, what we mean is We counsel individuals, campaigns, and organizations as they interact with the political process. A lot of people might use the term election lawyer, but so that's the that's what some people would say. And if you saw like the movie about there was an HBO movie about the recount in two thousand, there you know people would have used the term election lawyer, but. 
I prefer a broader term because we also help people with ethics rules and pay-to-play rules and how nonprofit organizations can participate in the political process. And that's not just about elections. It's it's broader than that. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, And one of the things we try to do here at Fly on the Wall podcast is we try to bring our listeners behind the scenes of how politics actually works. So uh, as a political or election lawyer, what does your day-to-day look like, especially during the busy campaign season? Right now, I'm at a law firm. So I'm at the law firm Clark Hill, and I run our political law practice. So I would be spending probably 10 to 12 hours a day juggling phone calls with my clients, and those could range from campaigns in the heat of battle to sitting congressmen or senators or governors who have who were dealing with an enforcement action for or it could be a corporation that wants to give money but make sure they're not uh, having any trouble with pay-to-play rules so it would be a variety of different clients all with different issues so that's what my life is like right now but before i came to a law firm i was in-house counsel for the Republican National Committee and then the Republican Governors Association and then the Romney for President campaign. So I've been sort of on the both ends of the phone dealing with lawyers. <laughs> Definitely a wide breadth of, a, of experience. Um, we are very familiar with your, uh, your work in the campaigns and um, in politics, uh, of course. Um, so we are going to get into a bit of that uh, a little bit more. Um, So we want to dive into a trend we're seeing in politics today and kind of make this the theme um, of today's podcast. Uh, So we want to talk a bit about moderates and where they've gone, (laughs) if that makes sense. So you're a big name in the Republican conservative movement, of course. Uh, So we thought that you'd be a good person to uh, get some of your thoughts on how the party uh, has been headed and where it's heading. So um, basically, just to start this conversation out, what's changed in the last eight or even just four years? Uh, So we, you know, looking at how things, uh, you know, shaked out this this past election, really don't see how Trump could have won a a primary four years ago, um, or really how even Mitt Romney or John McCain would have won this year. So could you talk a bit about, you know, from your perspective, what's what's happening? I would caution against drawing broad conclusions from Donald Trump's election. So especially when we use terms like conservative and moderate, because Donald Trump, remember, is a lifelong Democrat who he's almost a New York liberal Democrat who until about two or three years ago, he decided to call himself a Republican. Uh, But if you look at his background on policy issues, it's, it's very moderate. And some of his rhetoric during the campaign and even in office has been more, I guess I'd say, harsh or extreme. But his policy positions, I think, probably are pretty much center-right or centrist. So I have a hard time answering where the conservative movement is going to go. The conservatives fell in line behind Donald Trump in the presidential race because if the alternative was Hillary Clinton, you know, and and it will take Donald Trump any day. That's a pretty that's a pretty easy decision. And he's lived up to his promise on the Supreme Court. I mean, the one thing if you're a conservative, the one thing you knew that the president had control over was who he nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, I believe that everybody, think everybody in the Republican Party and conservatives and even reluctantly liberals say to me privately that his, you know, that Gorsuch was a slam dunk. I mean, he was a fantastic pick and he's somebody, somebody that everybody's proud about. I realize that some partisan Democrats and liberals are upset about Merrick Merrick Garland not getting, uh, you know, hearings or getting confirmed. But I have not heard any substantive critique of Garland. I'm sorry, of Gorsuch. So 
first right off the bat uh, in the first hundred days, Donald Trump has come out with a big conservative win in getting uh, Judge Gorsuch confirmed. Sure, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And you make a great point about Trump's. Once you push past some of the more bombastic statements that he's made, uh, he's actually you know in that center area. Uh, and something that we've been noticing, um, aside from Trump, is that you know, two of the second place finishers, uh, both in the Republicans and Democrats were more ideologically pure, probably a little bit more extreme uh, than the two who ultimately won the nomination. Uh, so candidates like Ted Cruz, candidates like Bernie Sanders, how would you explain their popularity? Is is there something more appealing towards that uh, super partisan or hyper ideological uh, drive? Or uh, is there just something else going on? I think... If you're talking about Ted Cruz, he was a bumper sticker candidate. In other words, if you were paying attention to the buzzwords and the language of conservatives over the last decade, he was spouting them all back. And so it was very, it's easy to run somebody like that. If I'm a campaign strategist or working on a campaign, Ted Cruz is the easiest thing to market because you know all the slogans and you can do the dog whistles to your supporters and the most partisan voters are the ones that are most likely to vote. And so you know who your core support, you know, base of support is. Uh, Bernie Sanders is a little bit different because he has the populist piece that is not that you know is not necessarily limousine liberal Democrat voters, and Donald Trump is especially interesting because what he was so good about was speaking to the concerns of working class Americans. And that was not a partisan issue. That was, you know, if you're looking at consent, if you're looking at concentric circles of political philosophy, there's some overlap actually between Sanders and Trump because they were both had some anti-establishment populist uh, sentiment that they were expressing. And Trump was, you know, masterful about identifying those concerns. Absolutely. So we've actually had a few communication specialists on the pod in our, our previous weeks. And I think what, what you were talking about, you know, Cruz really jumping on the, the buzzwords of the conservative movement over the past couple of years, um, you know, it, it proved to be an effective strategy. And, you know, what we've learned from some of the conversations we've had on the pod definitely do support that. Um, so, you know, in that same vein, sort of, uh, it seems like the nomination on the national level tends to favor more ideologically pure candidates. Um, like someone like a Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders. Uh, but we don't necessarily see that in um, some more local elections, like the governor's mansions, for example. Uh, so do you think there is a, a systematic um, or a systemic you know, aspect to the, the partisanship as well, or to the, the extremism that we're, we're seeing in some elections? Well, first of all, I understand your question, but I think it's, you know, the context, asking that is hard in the context of the fact that our president now is not ideological. So that sort of, you know, while Ted Cruz had a solid piece of the Republican electorate, he didn't win. He got soundly defeated by Donald Trump, who was not ideological. So that's on the national level. And then, you know, you asked a question about on lower level elections where you actually, you know, what's really interesting is that the two most popular governors in America are Charlie Baker, a Republican governor of Massachusetts, and Larry Hogan, a Republican governor of Maryland. And the thing that makes them both stand out is that they're problem solvers. They're not ideological. They're you know, they're center-right, uh, reflective of the the jobs and economy sentiments of their state, but they really avoid sort of hot-button social issues. And you've seen, you know, across the board, Republicans 
being able to do that running as centrist. What I think is really interesting is if you if you said you'd give me a reward if I could point out some centrist Democrats to you, they're gone. I can't tell you a you know center left or centrist Democrat that's certainly not you know I suppose Joe Manchin in the Senate, but you've got you know. He has been a little bit more moderate, but then you've got these the, these groups on the left that say they're going to do everything they can to oppose him because he voted for Gorsuch. And if you you, know, you ask about governors, I, I'm at a loss to think of any centrist Democrat governors. They've still played to the left. And I think one of the big differences on the Republican and Democrat side is the influence of the public sector unions. They still are the largest, you know, forced union dues are the largest base of consistent money in Democrat politics. And they really push the Democrat candidates to take a more radical position. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think what you're saying reflects a lot of what we see uh, when they do you know, opinion polling. You know, where do you, how do you identify a Democrat, Republican, independent? A lot of people will say independent. A lot of people will uh, consider themselves more moderate uh, than some of their voting patterns. So I, I think that you know, the trend towards more problem-solving candidates uh, actually sort of reflects what we see amongst the electorate. Uh, and I just want to dive uh, a little bit more uh, le- away from uh, campaigns and a little bit more towards governing, too, uh, because right now we know your party, uh, the GOP, has control of Congress, it has control of the White House. Uh, there's now a, a conservative majority on the court. Uh, so I, I just want to know, with that majority, um, are they going? Uh, do, do you think that Congress is going to pass pieces of moderate legislation, or do you think we're going to see uh, because a lot of what? Democrats were able to do uh, in 2008-2010 uh, when they did strictly um, a lot more left-leaning legislation and tried to do it you know, with their Democratic majorities. Do you think that uh, Republicans are going to take that tactic, or do you think they're going to you know, try to do some more moderate reach-across-the-aisle uh, sort of tactics here? The honest answer is I don't know, and we'll have to see how this plays out. President Trump has expressed a desire to work with Democrats, and I believe that's sincere. And you look at some of the inter- some of the issues like uh, infrastructure and tax reform, where it makes a lot of sense to sit down and have a centrist coalition and get things da- done. There's there was an assumption that things like uh, health care reform would be much easier with a Trump presidency and that a proposal, you know, a health care proposal that Paul Ryan might have hammered out with Hillary Clinton, you would have had the Freedom Caucus, you know, 30 to 40 Republicans oppose it just because it was with President Clinton. Mm. And now that we have President Trump, I'll admit, I thought that if the president was on board with the legislation uh, or, you know, Paul Ryan was supporting the president's agenda, that Republicans would fall in line and want to support the president. Uh, We didn't see that happen with health care reform. We saw the Freedom Caucus, you know, would rather have nothing happen than have some have some sort of reform that's less than perfect if they continue with that attitude then it creates even more of an incentive for the president to reach across the aisle having said that the problem is so many democrats still haven't gotten over the election and have this visceral dislike for not only the president, but just Republicans in general. I I saw this this hatred towards Donald Trump from the left. I saw this with President Bush, too. When I was working at the the RNC in, you know, after the president had been elected, President Bush had been elected, 43, 
remember, Democrats were chanting selected, not elected, and doing everything they could to delegitimize his presidency. Mm -hmm. And while he was successful in reaching across the aisle and working, you know, bringing, for example, Ted Kennedy on board with No Child Left Behind and getting some tax reform passed, there was still a visceral you know, hatred, I guess, is the term I'd use, that, and that was the genesis of, of some of these groups like, like MoveOn.org mm-hmm. that are still around. I mention that because Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have to decide if they want, you know, what they see their role is. Do they want to get, have Congress pass things have some solutions that helping help working Americans pass that might not be what they would have crafted if they were running things, but have a voice and work towards solutions, or do they just want to obstruct? One other group I would mention that I I would keep my eye on you if I were you is the problem. There's a group called the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House. And they're really pushing, you know, it's half Republicans and half Democrats, and they're working together on some centrist principles. And if they are able to stick together and vote as a block, that can cancel out some of the extremes and could really be a key for getting things passed. And I might note, for example, that they have a group called No Labels that uh, supports their agenda. And President Trump actually went to the No Labels forum in New Hampshire in late 2015. So he's familiar with what they're doing and I think would support a problem-solving agenda also. Certainly. That's so funny that you bring that up. I'm actually interning for Congressman Gottheimer, who's a co-chair of that Problem Solvers Caucus. Uh, Absolutely. This semester. Yeah. And I've sort of been briefed and, and I've, I've sort of grown to love some of those talking points that they talk about, you know, getting things done, you know, trying to avoid partisan uh, leanings and, and, you know, working on tax reform, working on infrastructure, you know, issues that we can all sort of agree need addressing and, and finding the best path forward. Uh, with finding a solution. So I, I definitely think that that's a great place to start in terms of bridging the gap that we see uh, between members of Congress. Yeah, I mean, if Congressman Gottheimer and, you know, as co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus has an opportunity to be what probably more important than Nancy Pelosi because she just wants to obstruct and has no positive proposals that could actually pass, where if he worked on the margins to craft uh, common sense, uh, you know, sort of centrist proposals, he actually could have a huge say in what happens in the next year or two. Sure. So uh, I'm happy you brought up uh, obstructionism, actually, because it fits in our conversation very well. Um, so like you said, um, and you're certainly not wrong, you know, the Democrats in Congress certainly do seem still hurt about the election. Um, they're We've seen that they're leaning much more towards obstructionism versus, uh, you know, trying to work alongside President Trump and a Republican majority. Uh, but a lot of that, uh, at least from what we've heard, is, is because of their voters. Um, at least a lot of their vocal voters, um, you know, who've been flooding their offices with calls and things like that, seem to be on the more um, the more obstructionist side of things. Uh, so if you are, you know, theoretically a Democratic congressman right now, what do you do? How do you balance, you know, the, the maybe what's what's best for the country, and you know, reaching across the aisle, trying to work with, uh, you know, Speaker Ryan and President Trump on something like infrastructure, versus balancing that with, you know, angry calls from constituents who want you to oppose anything that comes from the White House. I would really, cl- I would clarify. You started out by saying it's because of their voters. And I'm not sure that's correct. I think it's because of some very well-funded and angry special interest interest groups that are trying to push to the left and also raise quite a bit of money off ginning up, you know, opposition to the president. And nobody's pure on this. This is what groups on the right did against Obama, too. So I'm, you know, not 
Cassius versions on just one side. But to answer your question about if I'm a Democrat congressman, the first thing I would try to do is figure out does the fact that, you know, 25 people show up chanting and angry that uh, Democrats lost the election, does that really reflect what my constituents want? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's actually a perfect segue into uh, the last portion of the conversation we wanted to have with you, which is specifically campaign finance. I'm sure as uh, an election lawyer, as a political lawyer, you have a lot of experience in navigating that sort of realm, you know, what, where the money can come from, where it can't come from, what exactly needs to be disclosed, things like that. And uh, at least for those on the left, and uh, I think Justin and I have been guilty of this at times, you know, we talk a lot about, about um, how Citizens United, that decision sort of changed the game and changed the landscape. But I don't think there's a lot of education there uh, about exactly what has changed and exactly how the landscape has been altered. So I was just wondering if you could walk us through, uh, you know, you talk about the well-funded interest groups and, and them channeling the money in. If you could just walk us through how that sort of process works, give us a better understanding on both sides of, you know, how these new campaign finance laws have sort of driven those sort of political instincts that we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good question because some it's really remarkable that a Supreme Court case reaffirming political rights of political speech and association has somehow became a rallying cry on the left. I mean, that, that this is, you know, Overturning free speech rights is, was, is such an emotional issue for the left. And I'm guessing, in my experience, where I've talked to classes or had a chance to have a dialogue, people really don't know what Citizens United did. Mm-hmm. And it's a, I'm sorry, this is going to be probably a slightly longer answer. but <laughs> That's totally if, fine. If you go back to, you know, First Amendment jurisprudence in a nutshell goes back to post Watergate reforms in the 1970s when the bipartisan campaign, I, I, I'm sorry, when the Federal Election Campaign Act was passed. And there was a Supreme Court case, Buckley v. Vallejo, that defended restrict that said it was okay to put restrictions on campaign contributions directly to campaigns as long as those restrictions were designed to prevent corruption or the appearance of corruption. But it also said that trying to so-called level the playing field and make things have the government make things fair was not a legitimate goal for the government. So that's sort of the starting point in the 70s. And then we move in that construct into the 80s. And there's things called independent expenditures. And in, for example, the Colorado Republicans, U.S. Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court talked about how an individual is allowed to spend their own money to advocate for or against a political candidate, that that's core First Amendment protected speech, uh, as long as they're not coordinating with that candidate. So if if you went up to the candidate and said, how would you like me to spend the money? Of course, that's not independent, and that could have a corrupting effect. It's like it's it's kind of like a gift to them. But if you, as long as you're not talking to them about it and you're doing it independently, that has no corrupting effect, and and in fact, the candidate might not like it, and it might be hard. What you think is helpful or the issue you want to talk about might be harmful to them. So. The Supreme Court said you're an individual can do independent expenditures. There have been independent expenditures, you know, for the for decades. And if you think of, for example, the famous Willie Horton ad, you reduce, you know, that was in the 1988 election. That was an independent expenditure by a group that was supporting George Herbert Walker Bush in his campaign. And they had done the research and seen that Al Gore was attacking uh, Michael Dukakis for this furlough program that allowed some murderers out. And they picked up Al Gore's theme and ran some ads that were just devastatingly effective about the impact of Dukakis's furlough program. But while people think of that as helping President Bush, that was an independent expenditure. That was in the late 80s. 
then there were other cases that supported the you know over the next decade that and you had groups like moveon.org on the left, and you had groups on the right like Swift Boat Veterans for Truth in the 2004 elections. Again, those were, those were 527 organizations, but they were running independent expenditures. The only thing that Colorado Republicans, cha- I'm sorry, that Citizens United changed is it said that if in that it said that if individuals are allowed to make independent expenditures corporations are also have associational rights and they have the right to make independent expenditures also another and that's where the buckley v vallejo thing's important that's where the supreme court case from the 70s that said the only reason you're allowed to restrict free speech is if it's got a risk of corruption well, if a independent expenditure by an individual doesn't have a corrupting effect, then one by a corporation wouldn't have a corrupting effect either. And so Citizens United said that corporations could make independent expenditures too. This, my point in that whole thing is it's part of a long line of court cases. So even if you were to so-called repeal Citizens United, you have a bunch of other court cases that were the predicates for it still there, and you would still have a bunch, you, know, you would still have a mishmash of court cases that would have to be dealt with. And the reason that liberals that are paying attention don't like Citizens United is because it allowed the playing field to be balanced and more money to go into the system and support centrist and Republican candidates. If you look at the last two presidential elections in 2012, Barack Obama and his allies spent about $1.3 billion and Mitt Romney and his allies spent about $950 million. That means that Obama spent 30% more money, he and his allies, than Romney and his allies spent. And if you look at this last election, Hillary Clinton and her allies spent well over twice as much money as Trump and his allies spent. And one of the main reasons that there's all that money on the left is because of forced union dues. It, and what I mean by that is we're talking about public sector unions that are using their, their pu- public employees using being paid by our tax dollars who then are forced to give money to unions money that are coming out of our tax dollars, paying them a salary, they then give to unions, which then lobby to have more money paid to the public employees so there's more money to be pumped back into the unions. You can see this vicious cycle happening, and you can see why there's so much money and energy against people who oppose the public sector union agenda. Sure, absolutely. I mean, from just a personal perspective, I can definitely uh, agree with you when you say that people don't understand the whole story. Um, so we appreciate you educating us on that. Um, but I also definitely see how it's it's something that can very quickly turn into a talking point um, and a, a communication strategy, much more so than a, a deep policy talk, uh, like you were just able to give us. So um, with that, we are going to transition into our student question of the week. It's something we like to do to make our podcast as accessible to campus um, as we can. So this student's or this week's student question comes from um, Will Linde, a freshman in the School of Foreign Service. And his question for you is, let's say that you have unilateral control of the GOP and you want to get tax reform done. How do you bridge the gap between, like you were saying, the Freedom Caucus, the Speaker, the White House, maybe this Problem Solvers uh, Caucus to get it done? You know, I think this is where President Trump's skills as a deal maker could really come into play. I believe that Speaker Ryan, you know, former chair of the Ways and Means Committee, understands the nitty gritty details of tax reform. And 
he can come up with the policy specifics, but he would have to work hand in hand with President Trump, who has the bully pulpit and is a master deal maker. So I'd like to see the two of them work together along with centrist Democrats to get some of the burden off of individual and corporate taxpayers and try to make our system more fair and competitive with the companies around the world. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, ideally, uh, it does become a bipartisan effort or a unified effort to to try to do something with tax reform because I know it's next on the agenda and, and everyone's talking about it. Uh, so now we'll go to our final few questions. This is something that we call the lightning round, which means we'll be giving you uh, three questions in quick succession, and we just need a couple words uh, or even a sentence or two in response just so we can get uh, some answers to some questions that are really killing us. Ready? Yep. Cool. All right. So first, you've been called a super lawyer. What's a super lawyer? A lawyer that people have heard of. <laughs> That's a great answer. Uh, and the second, what was your favorite part of Georgetown Law? The energy around politics and public policy that comes from being in our nation's capital. Uh, we can uh, definitely agree with that. I know you're also <laughs> a shameless plug. You're an advisory member uh, for the Georgetown Institute of Politics that houses us, uh, and they've been great in instilling that sort of energy uh, into everything that we do. And finally, uh, last question, what advice would you give to college students who someday want to do the job that you do? Get a substantive background. So you've got to have real legal training. So get your degree, get real legal training, but also find a political issue or candidate that you believe in and you know, whatever you're passionate about, get involved with it. So get the substantive background, but if you're, you know, if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, figure out who the best, you know, I don't think Bernie's gonna be around by the time you're ready to practice law, <laughs> but sorry, but uh, <laughs> but figure out who you do believe in and or what the cause is and get involved, volunteer, and uh, spend some time on it so you get that experience. Great. That's fantastic advice. And uh, I'm sure all the future lawyers uh, who listen to the pod, and there are plenty here at Georgetown, uh, will definitely take you up on that. Uh, so thank you so much, Charlie Speed. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time to call in today. My pleasure. Take care. Same. Take care. Bye. I took music tech one in high school. Yeah. Why? Well, it's how I know like garage band and all this stuff. Uh, why? Because we had to take an arts and science course. Uh, I took 3D art. I was terrible at it. I got a B. I'm not kidding. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, well, though, so, interestingly enough, the my 3D art teacher uh, also taught Chase Utley. Really? Yeah. Did you go to high school? Yeah, Chase Utley went to uh, Poly. No, he didn't. I'm like not kidding. Did he actually? Yeah, he's a jack right. He's like 50 years old. So like Chase, <laughs> no one really cares, you know, like, but yeah, he went to, went to Poly. That's cool. Yeah. And that's like literally uh, Miss HB's like entire life is the fact that- What's her name? Miss HB. She had a full name, like it was Miss H- Hewler Baggard. Yeah, something like that. But she, it was irrelevant. Like everyone called her Miss HB. And she was like obsessed with the fact that Chase Utley took her high school class. It's a fun story. Should be like good to the episode. Yeah.